Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Last week's show started like this. The bedrock of our democracy is free and fair elections. Last week's Amy had a pretty good point and ended up being pretty timely, pretty prescient. On Saturday, Attorney General William Barr said this. Now stop and think about what universal mail-out ballots do. They eliminate every single one of those protections. There's no more a secret vote. Your name is associated with a particular ballot. So the government and the people involved can find out and know how you voted. The, uh, and, it'll, and it opens up the door to coercion. That, of course, is completely false. And on Thursday, President Donald Trump tweeted, The November 3rd election result may never be accurately determined, which is what some want. Stop ballot madness. So here we are again. It's why it's more important than ever for those of us in the news media to give voters the facts about casting a ballot, to push back on this sort of disinformation, and to hold to account the local officials in charge of making sure that our votes are counted. In that vein, earlier this week, I sat down with Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Our conversation is part of a special election series we're calling Every Vote Counts. I started out by asking Secretary Hobbs what role she plays in election administration. I'm the chief election officer for the state of Arizona. We oversee elections. We ensure that federal voting laws are complied with across the state. We also um, oversee election security. We administer the statewide voter registration database. We conduct logic and accuracy testing on voting equipment. We are also the filing office for federal state elections. We certify the official results, which is kind of important too. In other words, Secretary Hobbs is the authority on voting in the state. Since the early 1990s, voters in Arizona have been able to request a no-excuse absentee or early ballot. The state even has a permanent early voting list. Voters who opt into that are automatically mailed ballots before each election. And the numbers are on the rise. According to the Secretary of State's office, 79% of Arizona voters cast an early ballot in 2018. Now, as we know, COVID-19 has altered the way our voting process works. Many states are expecting vote-by-mail participation to reach new records and are hard at work making sure they can meet that demand. With such a robust early vote-by-mail program already being utilized in Arizona, I asked Secretary Hobbs what else is happening in the state to make voting safe and secure. We have really ramped up um, focusing on those voters that aren't already signed up for for our permanent early voting list, getting them on there, um, providing as much information as we can for how they do that. We worked with the counties to get a mailer to every non-permanent early voter on how they can apply for that list and be on that list or to receive a one-time early ballot. Um, But then we're also focused on expanding in-person early voting options, particularly in areas where voting by mail is more challenging. So um, expanding the early voting locations as well as the secure ballot drop boxes where voters can drop their ballots if they don't have access to the mail or if they're 
um, returning it late. And so the mail isn't an option. Um, and then also in terms of in-person voting, focused on all of the, the health precautions that need to be in place, um, supporting counties in recruiting enough poll workers, uh, making sure that they have the, um, the masks and gloves and things like that that are needed for poll workers and voters, um, as well as helping to secure larger facilities so that um, voting can be more spaced out. You pointed out that almost 80% of voters voted by mail in the last election. And, and I read somewhere that about 75% of registered voters in the state are already permanent absentee voters, meaning they automatically get a ballot in the mail. So it's already likely to be, a, when you think about voting, uh, many, many states have 75% of their voters coming into polls. Your expectation will be what? That because this is going to be likely a very high turnout, do you expect perhaps more people showing up at the polls this year because they have only now just registered? We do expect increased turnout. Uh, we saw a record turnout in our presidential preference election in March, record turnout in the primary that we just had in August. But we also saw a great increase in early voters in that election. That election saw, the primary saw 88% of voters voting early. Wow. Um, when voters register in Arizona, there is a box right there on the registration form or right there on the website if they're registering online to sign up for that permanent early voting list. Um, and so voters are getting that message really early on in the process. But let's talk a little bit about what some folks are saying about vote by mail. The attorney general was in the state a little while ago, Bill Barr, and he uh, said that the vote by mail uh, is a problem because it eliminates protections of secret ballots. He said, your name is associated with a particular ballot. The government and people involved can find out how you voted and it opens the, the door. door to coercion. Can you respond to that? Yeah, that is just absolutely not true. Um, and I think d just the attorney general's comments in general either indicate that he doesn't understand how the system works, or he's deliberately misleading the American people about how the system works. But um, one of the, the first thing that happens when the county recorders receive your ballot back in the mail is they have that affidavit on the envelope and they have to verify your signature to verify. That's how they verify the voter's identity. As soon as that happens, that ballot is separated from that envelope and it can never be tied back to that voter again. Those ballots go into the process ready to be tabulated. Um, and there's no way for any election official to go back into that pile of ballots and find somebody's specific ballot. And so when you hear the attorney general saying this, of course, the president has also argued that vote by mail is full of potential uh, fraud and that the election could be stolen from him based on the results of these these ballots that are sent in absentee. Um, tell me what you think this says to voters and what it says about the process. And do you think that it's potentially turning off voters from participating in voting? Well, the fact is that that is just disinformation about the process. And so disinformation is already a challenge that election officials across the country have to face. And so this is another layer of that. But I think in Arizona, we've been successful. We saw record turnout in our primary, which was in August. So after a lot of this conversation has been already happening nationally, we saw record turnout and record early uh, vote by mail turnout. So I think we're, we're um, 
were successfully overcoming um, that message. Voters in Arizona have put their confidence in vote by mail for a long time, um, and they're continuing to do so. Yeah, you've had vote by mail there for more than 20 years, right? Yes, it was uh, no excuse absentee ballot was authorized in 1996. Let's talk about counting those ballots in Arizona. It is in the last election, some of us remember quite well, waiting for, it felt like a long time. It, it was something close to two weeks for the final outcome of your race and for the Senate race, for all the ballots to be counted. It was funny, when I was researching this, I also went back and was reading stories from as far back as 2012, where they were still counting votes two weeks after election day. So what is your expectation for what the tallying will look like on election day? Well, I first want to say it's important for folks to note that the election isn't over when the polls close at 7 p.m. on election day, um, that there's a lot that goes on a- after that, um, including tabulating the ballot. So, the, and then the first thing, the first other thing I'll say is we don't know how many people are going to drop off early ballots on election mm-hmm. day. And so one of the things that contributes to longer um, tabulation times is processing those early ballots because those still have to be signature verified. In Arizona, we can start doing that immediately. So um, as soon as early voting starts and early ballots start coming back in, the counties are already processing those. We can start tabulating 14 days before the election. Um, That is not the case in a lot of other states that are starting early voting to larger degrees this year. So so I think that Arizona won't be the last one counting. And I think what we want to assure voters is everyone who has cast a valid ballot is going to have that ballot counted. We're focused on getting it right, and that doesn't always mean fast. And, um, you know, election results are never final on election night. There's always votes left to be tabulated. So I think that it's important to normalize that and and not think that there's anything going on wrong if election results are not final on election night, that there's still a lot of ballots to be processed. Yeah, and that's that's a question I've been asking a lot of um, election officials is sort of the transparency in the process. So as a voter there, how confident should I feel about putting something in a Dropbox, knowing that it's definitely getting to you? How will I know that you, not you personally, but that the election office has gotten it, has tabulated that vote, and I should feel confident that it's sitting there and is secure? So every um, early voter, every every voter who has a mail-in ballot is able to track their ballot um, when it gets back to the county. And so if you drop your ballot in a drop box on a Monday morning, by Monday afternoon, that ballot should be in the hands of the county and you should be able to check and verify at least by the next day that, that they have it. Um, in Maricopa County, which is obviously one of the largest voting jurisdictions in the country, um, you can actually opt into a text message option where it, it will actually send you a text message when your ballot's received. And so it takes all of the checking off of you and and you'll automatically get that notification. So it's a very secure process. um, And there's a lot of uh, regulations in both in statute and in the election procedures manual of how those early ballots are um, secured and transported from the ballot drop box back to the headquarters to ensure security around all of that. So if you vote early, like if you're voting... In early October, your ballot is already being tabulated. But if it's the day of the election and you go in and you drop off your ballot in a drop box, that is, that's okay. You can do that. Um, but it's going to take a lot longer than to process all of those 
last minute ballots? It doesn't necessarily take longer. There are a lot of folks working on that um, from election day until the end of the period of time where counties have to certify their results. Um, it just, it, it you, um, and you will get immediate no. It just might add to the time that it takes to tabulate all of the final votes. In looking back at your race, for example, this is what I, I'm wondering about um, your concern about, uh, as you said, this is normal. It takes a while to count votes. You want to get it right. But in many cases, um, news organizations want to call these races and say, you know, so-and-so has won the Senate race. This candidate has won at this level. And that you... Uh, the Associated Press called your race for the Republican. And it wasn't until a couple weeks later that it was clear that, well, that person didn't win and you did. So how worried are you that there's going to be some jumping of the gun by news organizations? And then that sets the tone, right? People are going to say, well, wait a minute. If, if AP said that this person won, how can you come back and say that's not true? Yeah, I, I, that is a concern. And when we're talking to reporters, we're asking them to refrain from that urgent desire to call the race um, because it does help contribute to that um, perception that, you know, things maybe are not above board. But but I also can assure folks that, that they are. And the ballot tabulation process is extremely transparent. In Arizona, every tabulation room across the state is um, is on video. And so anyone can go to a county elections website and watch that um, tabulation as it's happening. Um, so we provide a lot of transparency. Um, and, and I think it's also really important for voters to know that whether they've, they turned in their ballot um, the day after they got it, or they dropped it off on election day because they wanted to be a part of election day. And that's like meaningful to them that that vote is, is counted. Let's talk a, uh, a little bit about some of the legal challenges that are still sort of working their way through the courts. It seems like there are a number of issues. I don't want to get too much in the weeds for people, but it seems like there's concerns that fall into different categories. One is for the Navajo Nation, and this is obviously folks who many of them, these are rural areas, their argument is they should be able to um, have uh, their ballots counted after election day because it takes so long for their ballots in a rural area to get from where they are to the main sorting place where they count the ballots. And then there are also questions too about the legality of somebody going, so the other bucket is somebody going and picking up absentee ballots from different voters and then combining them and turning them all in at one time. Can you talk to us about those things? So the first thing you mentioned is the ballot receipt deadline. And um, there is a current lawsuit um, that challenges this um, this deadline, um, which currently is um, 7 p.m. on election day. Um, I think it's important to note that our office recently settled a very similar lawsuit dealing with the exact same issue. And in that settlement, put a lot of things into place that would help address some of the inequity. So um, increasing the number of early ballot drop boxes in um, these rural areas, remote areas, um, increasing the outreach we're doing to voters so that they understand those options um, and increasing other early voting options that they have. So our focus really is on making sure that we are minimizing the amount of confusion for voters. And um, I think changing the deadline at this point in the game where we've already been, you know, 
doing outreach for this election, emphasizing that deadline would be pr problematic to say the least. Um, that that um, there was a hearing in that case this morning, and so we're waiting to find out the outcome mm. of that. Okay. Um, the, the other the other lawsuit is pretty old. It's from 2016, and it's currently pending um, the Supreme Court. And so this is challenging the practice of so-called ballot harvesting. I hate using that word. It sounds like you're doing something nefarious like harvesting organs, but um, really it's um, helping your neighbors vote. And again, these areas where voting by mail, and there are lots of them in the state, is very, very challenging. Um, this would help to... Um, I mean, this law serves to disenfranchise large communities of voters. Um, it is pending um, at the Supreme Court, uh, and I don't anticipate any resolution on that prior to this election. As I mentioned, it's a pretty old uh, lawsuit. So what's the rule now about taking mail-in ballots from people who aren't directly related to you and going and dropping them off at a, at a polling place or a drop box? So that is a, a currently a felony in Arizona. The Ninth mm -hmm. Circuit overturned that, but um, there's a stay on that ruling. And so that current law, the felony ballot collection, is in effect. And we should anticipate that it will be in effect for this election. Do you expect to see folks, especially campaign folks uh, and attorneys, trying to raise this issue during the campaign? Um, do you expect to see that becoming a significant issue? The issue of ballot collection? Yes, that, that there'll, be, there'll be groups that are going to go and look for instances of this, or if they find instances of this, to alert, I assume they have to alert you? Is that how it works? We normally encourage them to send that those kind of complaints to their county um, election yeah. officials. And, and and at the count the county um, attorneys, um, but certainly um, the, they could also be filed with our office as well. But um, so we haven't seen, and that's one of the things about this law. We hadn't seen a lot of um, issues around this practice prior to the law being implemented. And since the law has been implemented, there hasn't been really any reports um, or instances of of people doing this. Right. Of, of, of organized efforts to bring in a large number of ballots and, and drop them off um, at, at one time. As we end this today, I'm just curious um, for your thoughts. We talked about dis the disinformation that's being spread um, about voting. And we know a lot of people in your position are doing all they can to put accurate information out there. Some are doing it through Twitter or through YouTube. Can you talk about the ways in which your office is um, combating this disinformation and the kind of help that you still need to make sure that voters know what is real and what isn't as they go to vote? I think one of the most critical tools that we have is relationships directly with the various social media platforms, which really is the channel where a lot of this misinformation is spread so rapidly. And so we can, um, with those with those channels, we're able to um, report things and have it sort of acted on more quickly than just if a general public member was reporting it. Mm -hmm. um, and also maybe carried taken with a little more weight coming from our office versus um, 
somebody just in the public, uh, because I'm sure that they have to deal with sort of misreports of misinformation all the time. But um, so that's so that's a really important tool. And then we are also very active on social media, um, and we are also working with with. So our office, if you notice, our social media platforms are verified, and we're working with all of the different county and local election offices to get that same verification because one of the things, the campaign that we're participating in with the National Association of Secretaries of State is Trusted Info 2020. And so those verified social media accounts or official websites are really the place we're trying to drive voters to to get the accurate information and if they see something that they're not sure, they can check it with those trusted sources of information. Um, so those are all really important tools that we have. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we are being effective. We saw record turnout in our primary election, um, both early and and overall. And so I think that we're doing something right. <laughs> well, Secretary Hobbs, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Good luck in this next uh, sprint. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Arizona has been a reliably Republican state at the presidential level in every election since 1952, except when Bill Clinton won it in 1996. President Clinton is going to win the eight electoral votes in Arizona. Uh, Arizona has not voted for a Democrat since 1948. Arizona, of course, one of the fastest growing states in the nation, all with the blessings and curses that go with it. But a rapidly growing population has chipped away at the Republican advantage. In 2016, Hillary Clinton improved slightly on President Obama's 2012 showing. And in 2018, Democrat Kirsten Sinema became the first Democrat in 30 years to win a U.S. Senate seat in Arizona. Polling in the state has showed Biden opening up a small but steady lead over President Trump. To help us understand how this once solidly red state has morphed into a purple one, I spoke to Lisa Sanchez, a professor in the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona, and Steve Goldstein, a host at KJZZ in Phoenix. For many years, it was Pima County, which encompasses Tucson and some other areas as well, that was reliably left. In fact, a lot of the people who won statewide office in Arizona who were Democrats came from Southern Arizona because of that support, like Senator Dennis DeConcini, for example. And it was often the Democrats from Maricopa County that didn't do so well. And so what we've seen is the demographic shift. I mean, certainly we've seen um, more activism when it comes to Latino voters. We've certainly seen that. We've also seen, though, people have talked about Californians who have decided that maybe it's too expensive in California or for whatever reason, maybe it's natural disaster, whatever it may be, they have come to Arizona as well and have moderated our politics. So we saw that, I heard you talk with Secretary Hobbs about 2018, and one of the races we were waiting for was the Cinema McSally race. And that was one where Kirsten Cinema did incredibly well in Maricopa County, which you never would have seen before from a Democratic U.S. Senate candidate. So again, a demographic shift, uh, and also just we're seeing people who are, um, e even some, some moderate Republicans, a lot of independents are thinking, K-12 education, that sort of funding. So we're seeing a moderation overall, I think. Yeah, Lisa, talk to us about that because, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of people appreciate that Maricopa County makes up more than 60% of the vote is coming from Phoenix and its surrounding suburbs. Um, and I think for many of us, the, for a long time, the image was of deserts and retirees and um, right uh, now it's these are booming population centers 
and especially um, they, they are behaving like so many other suburban areas, especially in the era of Trump, where they have moved from maybe being traditionally a little more conservative into the Democratic camp. Definitely. So, uh, I mean, you're, you rightly you say that uh, Maricopa County makes up you know, sizable portion of the votes in Arizona, add, add that to Pima County, and you basically have most of the votes. I mean, right. most of the polling data I see kind of breaks it up by what's Maricopa County doing, what's Pima County doing, and then rural. Other. Everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So everything else is sort of coupled together. Um, and definitely we've seen sort of unprecedented population growth in, in Maricopa County. At one point, I think it was 2017, 2018, it was the fastest growing county in the entire nation. When you see this type of change, really what you're looking for is, okay, where are the changes? Who's coming in and what do they believe? Um, and so one of the things that uh, uh, has occurred, I mean, as, as Steve pointed out rightly, is you're getting some people from California, you're getting some, some more liberal sort of urbanites moving to Maricopa County. But I think where I would, I would focus a lot of my attention as well is on the Latino population. Um, it has been sizable for many years and growing, and now it's becoming more active. Right. So we see, you know, 31, 32 percent of Arizona is uh, Latino or, or Hispanic. Um, so what, what the big question is, well, who are they going to vote for? Um, and so some recent polling data has really suggested that there are, I mean, very much um, supporting Biden in this in this next election. Um, and I think that's sort of a bellwether for other candidates who are, are sort of down ballot from the presidential race. Well, Lisa, there's also a lot of talk that while the, the, of the Latino vote, sorry, as the sleeping giant, that they make up a significant population, but sort of uh, punch below their weight. I don't know if that's the right saying, but they don't turn out at the level that Anglo voters, uh, African-American voters are turning out and that if they turned out at their population level, at their voting age population level, that would be a total game changer. So are you seeing that there's there's some movement on that front in this election? Absolutely. Actually, in the last several election cycles, so the midterms and then the 2016 election, we've seen sort of steady increases in voter turnout overall um, in the state of Arizona. But we've also seen that in regard to Latino Hispanics in this area. Um, and, you know, I think just about every decade refers to, since probably since about the 1980s, um, has referred to Latinos as the sleeping giant. So this is, this is nothing new in terms of sort of politics um, right. and referring to them in, in such a manner. But a lot of Latinos have, have suggested in polling data from Latino decisions that they're really enthusiastic to vote this time. Mm. Uh, despite all these sort of concerns with the pandemic, um, Arizona Latinos want to vote, they want to register an opinion, and that opinion, according to polling, is, is decidedly democratic this time. Steve, let's talk about that, uh, because the president is in, was down this week in Phoenix doing a roundtable with Latinos, and um, the expectation from the Trump campaign is that they can make serious inroads um, in this community. Um, is that realistic, do you think? Amy, if people have short memories, I guess it is. I think if we contrast how then-candidate Trump dealt with Latinos generally, I mean, obviously we know how he started the campaign uh, using offensive terms like rapists, and he, he thinks there might be some good people, to paraphrase. And now he decides to go in a completely different way. 
again, emphasizing one of the few strengths that a lot of people see the president having among voters is, does he have an economic appeal? Uh, are there folks who who like the idea of what he can do financially? And that's what he was appealing. He was having some, some small business owners come in and talk about this. And a couple of uh, analysts that I read made an interesting point, which is, is he actually trying to appeal to some moderate to independent white voters on this saying, hey, you know, the last time I ran, I did not say nice things about Hispanics and Latinos, but this time, hey, look, we're all sort of getting along. So it almost feels like a, a, a recalculation, but to act as though it's people will be convinced by it, I would be surprised if too many. As Lisa pointed out, the numbers are still showing Joe Biden with huge advantage in Arizona, especially among Latinos. Yeah. And Lisa, to that point, you know, what we hear over and over again is that Latino voters are um, registering more and more, and this isn't just in Arizona, but nationally as non-affiliated, that um, Democrats shouldn't think of them as uh, a group of voters that's going to always be with them. Um, tell me what you what you're seeing in Arizona with their commitment to the Democratic Party. Is this about Democrats and their policies or is just this just where things are in this election? Um, I think it's a little of both. Um, so where kind of the, the theory about Latinos being a little bit more moderate is really what's what's at stake here, um, at issue here, is that they tend to, when we ask them about their partisan affiliation, either, as you say, um, in high numbers, increasing numbers, uh, put themselves in, as independents, um, but there's still a really sizable portion that are, are traditional Democrats. Now, when you ask about ideology and polls of Latinos, they are more likely to say they're moderates, and many actually can say, say that they're conservatives. So they're not sort of partisan aligned in, this, in the same way that many um, other populations might be, African Americans coming to mind most easily, right? So they tend to be liberal Democrats. Um, so this is where this idea that they're, they're in play um, comes from. Now, in play means that you have to be able to hit on the issues that they care about. And so Latinos in, in previous elections, you know, have cared about immigration at some level, but that's a little bit of a misnomer that that's the only thing they care about. Um, I think a lot of parties try and, and shoehorn Latinos into being these single issue immigration voters, but Latino issues are, are nothing more than American issues. They care about the economy. They care about health care. These, these things are not, you know, not unique to Latinos. So if you're talking about the issues they care about in the way they care about, then that, that's where you're getting your vote, obviously. And currently, it seems like Democrats are aligning better with those issues. Right. And to be clear, it's for Republicans, they don't need to win Latino voters to win the state. But obviously, the more that they, the more voters that uh, vote Republican, Latino voters that vote Republican, the, the harder it is for a Democrat to win the state. Um, Steve, let's talk about another really high profile statewide contest, and that's the Senate race. Uh, Martha McSally running again. She was, she ran and lost in 2018. She was appointed to, to fill the seat of the late John McCain. Now she's in for another really tough race against Mark Kelly, the Democrat. Um, what's going on here in that race and how much is it tracking with what you're seeing at the presidential level? I mean, what's fascinating to me, first of all, about this race is that after 2018, when Kirsten Sinema defeated Martha McSally then, there was something that was never official, of course, but phrases we love, the cinema playbook because she had these incredible ads, ran a great campaign, and few of the ads actually mentioned she was a Democrat, 
we saw independent, independent, independent appealing to Arizona in that way. And Mark Kelly is, it's a different playbook because he was never a member of Congress, obviously, never run for office before. But it's the same sort of thing. I'm a problem solver. I'm pragmatic. I'm going to get things done. And by virtue of comparing to Martha McSally, is she tied to President Trump? Has she gotten anything done? She voted against your health care, that sort of thing. So that's really an interesting aspect of it. Every poll we've seen consistently has had Mark Kelly with a significant lead. The smallest I've seen was slightly outside the margin of error. We've seen as much as 12 and 13 points. I don't think anyone believes it's there, but people think he has a comfortable lead. The question I keep asking people is, can Mark Kelly win Arizona and Donald Trump win Arizona? There are some who actually believe that's possible, that Donald Trump could eke out a victory and Mark Kelly could still win by five points. Um, but one thing that has, has struck me about the parallels between Kelly and Biden is that independence, yes, but even some Republicans, these are two Democrats who, especially those who are disaffected by President Trump, they don't feel uncomfortable voting for these two. They may not jump for joy, but they see them as, okay, not ideologues and two people who might actually be able to get things done. And that seems like that's the parallel I think you're talking about. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and, and to that, Lisa, I want to talk about the Republican Party in the state. I mean, this is a state of uh, the late Senator John McCain and... The, the, la the other Republican senator there was Jeff Flake, who retired instead of trying to run for re-election. They both obviously were um, not fans of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is not fans of theirs. Um, what does this say about the Republican Party in Arizona, that the two senators there, or former Republican senators there, uh, were both unwilling to uh, and not... They were unwilling and then ultimately chose not to seek, uh, for Jeff Flake's sake, seek re-election in a state that Donald Trump carried. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it says actually nationally that there's something going on in the Republican Party writ large between elite Republicans and uh, Republicans in the masses. So Republicans in the masses have been very... Um, very receptive to kind of the off-the-cuff style of Donald Trump. In fact, they, they love it. They, they look for it um, because it, it shows sort of a, a very different way of being a politician and a very different style of a president that's sort of um, unapologetic. Now, those who are, are longtime elites in the Republican Party, you're starting to see them uh, come out in, in large part against Donald Trump, and, and they don't really want to see this type of style um, and be associated with that. This is not sort of what the, the Republican Party that they, they came up with. Um, so I think it, it talks a lot about kind of the schism at the elite level, maybe not so much at the mass level. Yeah, it's that's a really good point. And and to that, Steve, what do you think that anything changes? Should let's say Biden wins Arizona, and uh, Mark Kelly wins the Senate race, and Arizona now has two Democratic senators and a Democrat that won president? Does that may, uh, give the Republican Party in Arizona pause to say, hmm, maybe we should? kind of think about doing things differently or have different kinds of candidates that we put forward the next election. Amy, you've been covering politics so well for so long. I, I think about Mitt Romney after he lost in 2012. And the idea was, okay, what do we do to get the Latino vote? We need to calm these things down. And the Republicans kind of went the opposite way. 
Um, I think there are enough defiant, if we think about the primary voters and those who are precinct committee people of a Republican Party, I, I, so I will say this as a, as a citizen, I, I, don't, I suspect you're not going to go the QAnon direction, but to think that they're going to try to go more moderate, um, the big tent Republicans, for a lot of people, and Lisa pointed this out, it, it doesn't seem like it's really there anymore. Uh, I talked to Jeff Flake recently, and the things he was saying a couple of years ago, yes, now we're seeing more Republicans for Biden. We're seeing that, but they're being really shot down by many of those who are passionate about President Trump. The, the President Trump aspect of things is going to linger, and I think there are going to be enough practical Republicans who say yes, but they may also just decide to, to register as independents and, and feel like they can't change the party around. I just, just based on the direction we've seen, I think it would need to be more than that. Again, you'd have to see... I come back to the pragmatism thing. If Mark Kelly were a flaming liberal, then maybe you'd see a, a change, but they're going to say, okay, he ran as an independent. He basically agrees with us on 30 to 50% of things, whether that's accurate or not. So I wouldn't bet on it, but I mean, I, I work in public radio, so I don't bet on much these days. <laughs> Listen, I think that's a, I think it's a very, very fair assessment. Um, Lisa, I want to uh, end here with you and talking about, you know, the worries about election uh, election day, but of course in Arizona, so many people vote early that the election is over the course of weeks, not just on on one day. Um, are there concerns, or and do you think there should be concerns about the ways in which disinformation is being spread about the way that people are voting, voting early? Uh, the president obviously spreading a lot of this, that suggesting that somehow if you vote by mail there is something potentially fraudulent that could happen. Do you worry that ultimately the state, if it goes for Joe Biden, that there is something of a, uh, the, the trust that voters have in the voting process in the state will be questioned and that uh, people will, uh, and the president himself may do this, but direct a lot of vitriol at the way that Arizona votes? I would say it, this is, again, it's, Arizona is, is probably not unique in this regard. I think a lot of people still assume that Arizona is very much a red state, and it is. Um, I mean, if, if we're thinking about, you know, registration levels, there are a sizable number of, of Republicans in the state. Um, so certainly when you see a mismatch between kind of registration and, and sort of assumptions, long-held t- long assumptions, then, you know, there's always a question mark. Why, right? So I think... Um, as the media kind of shines a light on Arizona as a battleground state, it's helpful um, to, to mitigate whichever way the election goes in Arizona, that maybe there was, you know, there was, there was more electorally at stake here um, than was necessarily, that we necessarily uh, thought there was. Now, the other part of that question is kind of, you know, will there be a response? Well, I mean, if any, if history is any sort of indicator in the last several presidential elections, there's always been recounts and talks of recounts. And, and there's been, I mean, in some cases, riots. And this is across the country. This is nationally. So I, I mean, I wouldn't expect this election to be any different. I mean, it's, it's a very similar um, political, kind of divisive political um, environment. And therefore, anybody who doesn't see the outcome that they're hoping for is, is always going to kind of put a question mark on there. And then especially if you add in kind of the pandemic and all of kind of the uncertainty that we're living with these days, it's definitely going to cause a lot of people to feel uncomfortable um, about anything that may seem unique or, or untoward. Um, and 
I haven't seen a lot um, in terms of PSAs uh, about, mm -hmm. you know, voter information in the state of Arizona. Certainly I use my students always as a, as a bellwether, you know, they're, they're a unique population, but they are very media savvy. Um, and, and kind of to a man, none of them have really seen a lot coming out of the state of Arizona suggesting, you know, there's this big push to make sure that everything is done the way it should be, despite the uncertainty built in, baked into this pie. There's room still for the state of Arizona to do a little more in terms of educating voters and telling them, look, we have been voting like this in large numbers via mail-in ballot and permanent uh, early voting list for decades now, right? So it, things are going to be okay. This is, we know the system. We understand how the system works. Um, so I think if some, if more of that kind of occurs, I think we, we, we should be able to eke out okay. But will there be people who don't like the outcome, win or lose, I mean, regardless of who it is? Yeah, there always will be. <laughs> Well, Steve, that leaves you then as the PSA <laughs> person, as part of the, the media. What role do you see yourself and others in who do what you do in the state in helping to educate voters and to to point out disinformation as, as much as you can? Yeah, Amy, there's the, the, the fact check, the, the how many Pinocchio sort of thing. I mean, that is a responsibility to figure out what's going on, but a, a basic information. I want to go back to something you talked with Secretary Hobbs about, if I may. Um, the idea of sort of the impatience of what election night really is. And in talking with county recorders and other people who are involved in these things, we have to send out the message, and this is not a partisan message, send out the message that accuracy is the most important thing, which sometimes people in media, you, know, you want to get things first, but in elections, and this is the biggest election of all time, as every election seems to be, but to a lot of to a lot of people, <laughs> this one certainly is. the The concept is to say, "Listen, it's worth waiting five days. It's worth waiting however long it takes to get this right." Because yes, as as Lisa points out, people are going to be upset with the outcome, but it, it comes down to the media presenting the facts and letting people know what's out there. But also, I, I love working election night. Sure, do I want to know who won by eleven o'clock that night? I sure do. But if it doesn't happen, I'm also live in this democracy, and I think we just want things to come out accurate, and then when things are decided, they are decided. Yeah, and Steve and Lisa, you you really raise very good points. And the question of being disappointed in whoever wins the state is one thing uh, that we're used to, but questioning the integrity of the voting process that feels very new uh, to me, at least. But. We will see. We've still we've still got a ways to go before the election. Steve Goldstein, Lisa Sanchez, thank you both so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. For so many black people, the whiz feels like home. Like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, We'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Latino voters are a growing share of the population in states like Florida, Texas, and Nevada. In Arizona, they account for about a quarter of voters in the state. Like 2016, the race for the White House could come down to a few thousand voters in these key states. 
And while national polling shows that Joe Biden is ahead of President Trump among Latino voters, it still is below Hillary Clinton's margins from 2016. Reporting from The Washington Post describes the Biden campaign's attempts to build out an infrastructure to connect with these voters, but some worry it feels like an 11th hour play. I just have one thing to say. Hang on here. <laughs> All right. Of course, Latino voters are not monolithic. And with less than 50 days until the election, I wanted to better understand how the Biden campaign was working on making inroads between now and November 3rd. I spoke with Carlos Odio. I am the co-founder of Equis Research, a Latino research hub. Equis has put out a number of polls aimed at better understanding the nuances of the Latino electorate. I started off by asking him if Democrats should be worried about Biden's flagging support from Latinos. We have been flagging these kinds of numbers for over a year, so they weren't um, so much of a surprise as that now that the rest of the electorate, that numbers among white voters might be returning back to earth for Joe Biden in some places, that now the Latino vote and its preferences uh, are of greater import. So Carlos, if we focus in on Arizona for a minute, what is it about Latino voters in Arizona or the environment in that state, political environment in that state, that seems to be helping Joe Biden do better? Arizona is a fascinating Latino electorate in that it is almost a combination of demographics in a state like Nevada and those in a state like Texas. A more progressive, younger, heavily Latina and urban electorate in a place like a place in Nevada. Um, and then also the more rural, multi-generational vote that you see in a place like Texas. What has now improved margins for Biden and Clinton and cinema before him is the prolonged fight over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, um, we had SB 1070 at the time, the, the, the most anti-immigrant legislation in the country. What came out of that is an incredible infrastructure. Some of the leading organizers in the state of Arizona came out of that fight. The growth in the electorate is from folks aging into the electorate, right? You had a lot of young Latinos who are now coming of age, and that has transformed the electorate in a place like Arizona. It is a much more progressive um, set of voters at this point. So younger, more progressive than, say, Florida, where, you know, we think about Florida, we think the Cuban vote specifically, which could be older, more conservative what else is it about Florida that makes Republicans feel a little bit better about their successes there? If you take out the Cuban vote, the kind of numbers that Biden is doing among non-Cuban Hispanics in Florida are equivalent to what he's doing in a state like Arizona. You take two voters with the exact same demographic profile. Both are Latino. One is Cuban. One is not. The Cuban is much more likely to be a Republican, to be a Trump supporter. What happened in 2016 is that some generally Republican Cubans held back from Donald Trump. They were skeptical of Donald Trump. And after 2016, after his election, found a way home. And that's where you get tighter margins. So now the Hispanic vote in Florida looks less like 2016, but still equivalent to what you might have seen in 2008 or 2012, the Obama elections. In 2018, Republicans were successful in statewide elections in the state of Florida. 
And a lot of credit was given to the Republican success, specifically Republican Rick Scott, who was then the governor and now is the senator of Florida, his success with Puerto Rican voters, that he did incredible outreach there, especially in the wake of uh, the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. And I'm wondering if we're seeing some of that same support from the Puerto Rican community transfer to, to Donald Trump. What Rick Scott did so well is to understand that the Hispanic vote in Florida is a margins game. That Republicans generally these days are not going to win the Hispanic vote. But the goal is, can you go to any of the constellation of 20 different national origin groups and pull off 100, 1,000 votes here or there? And so Rick Scott famously showed up seven times at this one Arepa place in Doral, which is heavily Venezuelan area, courting the Venezuelan vote. He was making aggressive outreach to the Puerto Rican electorate. And understanding that you could piece all of those votes together, it helps you get, as he did, a 10,033 vote winning margin in a place like Florida. It appears that Trump has replicated some aspect of that. Um, With the Puerto Ricans in particular, we see that he has some appeal with younger men. That's interesting. So you think younger, and and this is across different groups of Latinos. Is it just younger men to Donald Trump? Or is this is there going to be a big difference between Latinas vote for president and their male counterparts? The gender divide within the Latino electorate right now is is stark. And in states where it really matters, like Arizona, it is starkest with voters under 50. It is especially true among the young. The real story is the extent to which the women have fled the Republican parties. The share of Latinas who were supporting a McCain or Romney, many of those fled in the Trump era. The most anti-Trump voter within the Latino electorate is a young Latina. Hmm. What do you think this is about, this gender divide? I think a great part of it, right, is what communities, what networks are these voters occupying, right? Especially what we see with young Latinas is that young Latinas generally work and live within similar networks, similar communities that are, by the way, bear the brunt of all of the Trump decisions, that bear the brunt of Trump decisions on immigration or economy on the healthcare. You have younger men in particular who both from a work perspective are working in predominantly white spaces and from a media consumption perspective are in um, social media spaces like Reddit and YouTube with other young men and are getting the same kind of radicalizing messages we hear about so much. So much of it is is anti-Me Too, is about anti-political correctness. It is a dynamic that we've talked about a lot when it comes to non-college white men, is a little less studied when it comes to non-college black and Latino men. I want to talk to you, too, about some of this uh, that we're seeing. There's a piece in The Washington Post about the Biden campaign building this aggressive outreach program, micro-targeting. We know that Michael Bloomberg now announcing he's going to spend $100 million in Florida alone. Is it too late to only now be focusing on Latino community, trying to get them organized and out to vote? I think part of the freak out is a product of the fact that you are seeing so much of this happen late in the cycle. A big part of this is covid You know, Barack Obama loses the Latino vote in the 2008 primary, but is able to come out of the gate and make very aggressive outreach. So much of it is physical presence, 
of himself, of his surrogates, of his organizers. And during the COVID era, obviously Democrats were much more cautious and were not able to do that. And so only now are they getting on the road. Biden is in a good position where he is underperforming is less about people liking Trump and more about the fact that they just don't know as much about Joe Biden. We found this consistently in polling and focus groups. They knew he was vice president. They didn't know much more beyond that. But the moment you introduce any information, bio, policy, you see the numbers start to move. And I also note that with Latinos in particular in the polling, you tend to see a larger number of undecideds. Part of this, there are theories that this is Latinos understating um, how firm their vote might be at this point, but that it also, there's some evidence that Latinos decide on their vote late in the cycle. And again, that it isn't so much a decision between Donald Trump and Joe Biden as it is a decision between voting and not voting. So is it too late? I don't think it's too late, but I do think we will see and we can see growth for Biden in the next few weeks if the outreach continues as it's been in the last couple. The one last thing I wanted to get you to weigh in on is there have been some stories recently in Miami, Politico also reported on this about the disinformation that's going on throughout the Spanish language media. I mean, we know about disinformation that's out there on English media. And as you pointed out, there are all these websites that people are flocking to. But how worried are you that it's more challenging for Democrats, for the Biden campaign to challenge some of the misinformation that's coming through Spanish language media and and that it's having a real impact? People ask me all the time, how how could any Latino vote for Donald Trump when they know X or Y? And part of the answer is you're assuming they've heard X or Y. And that's where this media environment in a place like Miami comes into play. If what you are doing is watching Fox News, you are getting news additionally from Facebook, from YouTube, you're watching local Univision, you're reading El Nuevo Herald, the Miami Herald in Spanish, you're listening to Miami radio in Spanish, you have a very different picture of the Trump administration. And the challenge is it's not just any one channel or any one player. There is this network, this funneling of information and disinformation that the Trump campaign is part of. They also push some of these narratives. You see it, again, not just in fringe players on YouTube, but in mainstream news. You're seeing it in mainstream papers, mainstream radio stations that are pushing narratives around law and order and Black Lives Matter, um, that are pushing active conspiracy theories that with heavily anti-Semitic tropes, that are even pushing not necessarily QAnon theories, but QAnon adjacent um, narratives as well. Well, Carlos, we could talk about this forever. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. Thank you for having me. Carlos Odio, co-founder of Equis Research, a Democratic Latino research firm. For years, conservatives have argued that Latino voters are gettable for Republicans. They argue that many Latinos are socially conservative and are more willing to side with the GOP on issues like taxes and support for small businesses. The Trump campaign is appealing to Latinos with a message centered on crime and the economy. In Nevada, the president said this. So Joe Biden would be a disaster for all communities, not just the Hispanic community. Hispanics like Hispanics like tough people. They like 
people that are going to produce jobs. For the last nine years, the Libra Initiative, a conservative organization funded in part by the Koch brothers, has been trying to build a foothold for the GOP with Latino voters with grassroots organizing. The organization is hosting a town hall event with the vice president, Mike Pence, on Friday in Phoenix. I spoke this week with the president of Libra Initiative, Daniel Garza, about the work his group is doing to reach out to Latino voters, especially at a time when COVID has made traditional grassroots campaigning a challenge. Millions of Latinos believe in restraining government in in a lesser, more efficient, smarter government. And to do that, what we do is um, talk to them about the benefits of less taxation, of diminishing so many needless uh, regulations and mandates that come from the state or from the federal government. School choice is a very uh, important issue to many Latino parents across the country. Educational freedom has empowered parents, and we feel that it also improves the quality of education for the children. Uh, Health care that also preserves private insurance is important to Latinos. Principal judges who honor original intent and uphold the Constitution. And yes, law and order is a very important issue. And then on the opposite side, Latinos also are very concerned about higher taxes, more regulations, expensive green energy uh, deals, uh, minimum wage that would result in the termination of many Latinos across the country and or part-time them or close their businesses. This radical idea of defunding law enforcement uh, is a big issue. Now, you all are doing an event with Vice President Pence this week in Phoenix, correct? Yeah, that's correct. What kind of conversation are you hoping to have with the vice president? We're going to be talking to the vice president about our priority issues, uh, our concerns. I just think it's it's so important that Latinos uh, stop getting these priorities projected onto us. And, uh, you know, a lot of Latinos right now are scraping their knees trying to get by um, in this economy uh, that has this artificial uh, recession uh, that we're experiencing um, that has been imposed through these restrictions and this quarantine. And so it's it's been tough. And so we're going to have faith leaders, business leaders, educators who are, who are going to be talking to the vice president about the kind of things that are impacting them and what, in, what we need to do to get a bounce back. Yeah, talk to me about, you said that issues are being projected on them or concerns that are being projected on them. Who, who's projecting things onto Latino voters, yeah, you think? So- and what sorts of things are they projecting? The national media uh, would have you believe that the only thing we care about is immigration. There is no question that's an important issue, but the economy has always been a number one concern for Latinos. And a lot of these issues I just discussed uh, are impacting Latinos. What I also hear and see in some of the polling data, though, is that the issue of the coronavirus and specifically the health concerns, it's disproportionately impacted people of color. And uh, I'm wondering how that fits into this conversation. Yeah, so uh, obviously education of our children is being impacted by these restrictions. The congregations in our churches have been limited and the expression of faith and that spiritual connection that you get in a church has also been hindered. Um, Across the country also uh, with small businesses, uh, they're being decimated. And so we need to have a national conversation about, you know, uh, what are those smart things that we can do to open up the economy and at the same time safeguard people. And, and, and like you said, you know, disproportionately Latinos are being impacted by COVID. But we know what to do. The separation, the mask, th- these kind of things that are going to be so critical if we do open up a bit more. Um, it, what, what we are going through right now is unsustainable uh, for our children, for families, and uh, for our churches.
the Trump campaign is hoping to make and is expecting to make inroads with Latino voters. And in fact, we've seen some hand wringing these last couple of weeks from Democrats who say that Joe Biden is not doing as well as they think he should be doing with Latino voters, whether it's in South Florida or in Nevada, for example. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you think that the Trump campaign can do better with Latino voters? Look, uh, is Donald Trump uncouth sometimes when he speaks? Does he think out loud? Uh, Clearly. Um, and this isn't some new revelation, you know, to folks that uh, may vote for him. But it's the economic policies, uh, preserving private health care insurance, expanding school choice, you know, nominating principal judges who will uphold the Constitution. All these things are not insignificant to Latinos. And, and if he keeps driving this uh, in a way that connects with Latinos, um, I, I think he can score a lot of points. Now, look, um, he also needs to be relatable. I really like what he's done with with uh, Latinos for Trump. What he's done is actually mobilize Latinos to recruit Latinos and also to persuade them to his point of view. And because it's so important that you relate to the Latino community and that they relate to you. Latinos prefer to hear from someone who, who has a shared language, a shared culture and a shared experience. And keep in mind that Biden has sort of given uh, Trump an advantage by not door knocking. And you have... Latinos who are out there uh, going door to door, talking to their fellow Latinos uh, about Donald Trump's policy. That's been really important. So I think that's been very effective for the Trump campaign. And I think it's going to result in, I think, in higher uh, percentages of of the Latino vote. I know you talked about, you know, the national sort of conventional wisdom getting put upon voters. I appreciate that. But at the same time, how can the way that the president talks about immigration, the way that he uses racist language, not impact the way that Latino voters think about him and should be processing the possibility of their vote. Well, keep in mind, Amy, that just because you disagree with the president on one issue, that doesn't mean you're willing to forsake all the other issues that you that you agree with him on. And, and so you may have a, a, a disagreement with uh, the way President Trump addresses the issue of immigrants, but you still want less taxes, you still want less regulations, you still want school choice and healthcare that preserves private insurance and principal judges and you know increased energy uh, and all these other things. Are you willing to forsake those for you know where maybe if you work with the administration, uh, maybe you can arrive at, at at consensus on the issue of immigration? Well, Daniel Garza, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure, Amy. Daniel Garza is president of the Libre Initiative. And one more thing from me today. Earlier this week, President Trump announced plans for the 1776 Commission, which he said is designed to encourage educators to teach children about, quote, the miracle of American history. But this commission, discussed just weeks before Election Day, isn't really about schools or teaching. Instead, it's the latest attempt by the president to gin up a culture war, to accuse those who want to explore the complexities and contradictions of our history of being anti-American. You either love America or, well, you don't. Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve the civic bonds that tie us together. 
As a short-term political strategy, this kind of divisiveness can be effective. A recent Pew Research poll found that nearly half of white people, but only a quarter of Hispanic people and 18% of black people, say a majority-minority country would weaken America's customs and values. But in the long term, this kind of rhetoric is dangerous. It suggests that there's only one way to be a good American, or to be patriotic. Unlike so many other countries that are held back by attachments to age-old rules and expectations, we are constantly evolving and constantly challenging the status quo. It's what makes this country the envy of the world and the optimistic, dynamic place it is. Those are American values, and no one has more of a right than anyone else to claim them. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Howitt is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. If you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcast and leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime, 877-8-MY-TAKE, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>